Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. All right, this week on the show, we are going to be solving some mysteries. First up with Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstad from the 99% Invisible podcast, which you might have heard of. They're just like experts at telling these surprising and fascinating stories behind all kinds of stuff. The power grid, spray paint that you might see in the roadway, you name it. Then we're going to talk to writer Shayla Lawson. She's going to shed some light on the magic and power of black girls, who she celebrates in her fantastic essay collection. And then, in case you were wondering, hey, what happened to that band Men at Work from Australia? Well, we're going to tell you what's been going on for the lead singer. Colin Hay is going to stop by and play us a song. That is the plan for this week's show. It's going to be great. So don't go anywhere. Get started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. Nice to see you post-Thanksgiving and... uh, Get everything going here with the show again. Are you ready to get back into a little station location identification examination? Heck fire, yeah, I'm ready. Okay, this is where I give you uh, some clues about a part of the country, and you try to guess where I'm talking about. Okay, this village is located in what's called the Cape Cod of the Midwest. It's also home to Al's Swedish Restaurant, uh, which features a sod roof that has goats grazing on it. Well, I was just thinking Cape Cod of the Midwest has to be on a Great Lake, right? Mm-hmm. And Swedish is usually sort of up toward the top of the country. I don't know if it's particularly a village, but uh, I was going to guess Traverse City, Michigan. Oh, you're in kind of the right part of the country, but you've got to get a little cheesier with it. Wisconsin somewhere. Yes. It's Sister Bay, Wisconsin, where we are on the air on WHDI by way of Wisconsin Public Radio. Oh, cool. I wonder if there's an antenna on top of that goat roof that's like picking <laughs> up our radio station. original <laughs> owner, I'm told, registered the goats on the roof trademark. So no other restaurant in America can have goats on their roof. <laughs> very savvy there at Al's Swedish Restaurant. And we are very excited to have everybody tuning in on Wisconsin Public Radio and WHDI in Sister Bay, Wisconsin. All right, 
Should we get uh, going with this here episode of Livewire? Yes. <laughs> get it? <laughs> that one worked. I can't say all of your attempts work, Passarella, but that one, I'm giving that one an A+. plus. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstedt from the 99% Invisible podcast. Your feelings are not to be discounted. Pay attention to that, and hopefully designers pay attention to that, because design is supposed to be an empathic exercise. Writer Shayla Lawson. When we think about the title Black Lives Matter as a movement, that's not speaking to Black people. You don't need to tell Black people their lives matter. And music from Colin Hay. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of LiveWire, Luke Burbank! Yeah! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in, including whatever goats may be on whatever roof, <laughs> accessing the broadcast this week. We have a great show in store for you. Of course, we asked the LiveWire listeners a question. We asked, tell us about a mystery that you can't seem to solve because we're kind of we're getting the, uh, the the sort of explanation on some mysterious things this week. We're going to read those responses from listeners coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Okay, so bittersweet best news, but still, I just find this so heartwarming. Um, A lot of people already know that over Thanksgiving weekend, the great uh, American musical theater songwriter and lyricist Stephen Sondheim passed away at Mm -hmm. the age of 91. You know, he's been writing for musicals since the 50s with like West Side Story and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And he's just inspired about four generations of musical theater makers. And it really showed when the news started to spread that he had passed on because that night in New York, all of these different cabaret clubs ended up having these impromptu Stephen Sondheim sing-alongs. There was a line out the door, according to the New York Times, at Mary's Crisis Cafe, and people just kept on coming in for five straight hours. One guy brought his family from Thanksgiving dinner. He was like, guys, we got to go. And everyone poured wine and gathered around the piano. There are these great pictures going around the internet and just cried and sang his hundreds and hundreds of songs that so many people knew all the words to. Same thing was happening down the road at Duplex, which has an open mic, and they turned it into this really raucous Stephen Sondheim joke fest. Upstairs at the Duplex, they revived this mostly Sondheim cabaret that was ongoing for a long time and closed in about 2016. There were trivia via nights. There were Facebook live streams. Somebody commented on one of the Facebook live streams, I'm trapped in Delaware with no access to a piano bar. Thank you for making this available to me. (laughs) I'm in a Sondheim desert. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for connecting me virtually. I just love the idea that sometimes people's grief and interest in paying tribute to someone Mm -hmm. makes an event happen. It makes a gathering. And that gathering is as much about like keeping the person's art and life alive as it is paying their respects to the fact that he's passed on. I know so many students and community theater people and just fans who had these incredible interactions with him. I can't imagine him not loving 
what happened the night that the news of his passing spread. I heard one obituary of him talk about his style of music being a lot of Broadway shows and and musical theater. The end of the show puts a bow on everything, and you sort of have this feeling of, like, everything's just fine. And Sondheim liked to leave you with a question. Mm -hmm. And his characters would often, they, they would be still kind of puzzling it out, and it would send you home from the theater kind of puzzling it out for yourself, which is what really good art does, right? It has you thinking about the world differently. That's totally right. Now, I don't know if you would consider an Oasis cover band called Noasis the artistic level of, say, a Stephen Sondheim, Elena. Oh, no. no. (laughs) But the Oasis cover band Noasis was scheduled to play a place called the Tan Hill Inn in a town called Richmond in North Yorkshire. This is a couple of hundred miles northwest of London. This was last weekend, okay? And uh, apparently, a lot of people were excited to come and hear the music of Oasis as covered by Noasis. <laughs> so they go out to the Tan Hill Inn. They're enjoying the show. Everything's going great. Nobody quite realizes that outside it is snowing like you wouldn't believe. Oh, and no. this particular pub and inn is at a pretty high elevation and is, in fact, very hard to get to or from when there are feet of snow on the ground, which is exactly what happened during the concert. Oh, no. And so, like, 61 strangers <gasps> had to stay the entire weekend in this pub, sleeping on the floor of the pub because it was impossible to get back to wherever they were from. There was a wonder wall of snow, you might say. There certainly was. And I believe there were a few glasses of champagne that were raised. This I actually thought was kind of interesting, though. The pub owner was kind of keeping everyone updated via Facebook about how it was going at the Tan Hill Inn over this weekend. And she mentioned that People were having a pint or two, but no one was getting out of control. Everyone was keeping it kind of together. There was a lot of uh, singing going on, a lot of Oasis songs being sung. Who knows? <laughs> maybe some, maybe some Sondheim. Uh, also, they uh, were watching movies. They watched Grease. They watched <laughs> Mamma Mia. They played pub <laughs> trivia. Everybody apparently just had a really wonderful time. You kind of get the sense reading this article that people were a little sad to leave. Like Aww. this had just become this magical little weekend. They um, exchanged numbers and there is a, a conversation about having a reunion. A Snowasis <laughs> reunion Snow next Oasis. year at this time. Get all of the same folks together. Who knows? Crash out at the pub or at least just get together to remember this amazing impromptu weekend that they had. Beautiful. I love yeah. it. So that is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's welcome our first guests over to this week's Livewire. They're basically gumshoes kind of in their own way. Uh, If the kind of mysteries that you're looking to solve are mysteries like, why are there sprinklers installed over this patch of gravel? Or why is Provo, Utah's municipal flag so weird? Roman Mars created the wildly popular 99% Invisible podcast. The point was to explore architecture and design. Vulture has named it one of the 10 nonfiction podcasts that changed the genre back in 2019. Roman has now taken that kind of amazing skill set to the page, along with the 99% Invisible's digital editor, Kirk Colstead, in their new book, The 99% Invisible City. The Hidden World of Everyday Design. And I promise you, 
You're never going to look at your surroundings the same after you hear about this book. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstad from last year, right here on Livewire. Roman and Kurt, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, Roman, let me start with you. Were you always someone who, like, even as a kid, was just really looking at things and trying to kind of understand the more subtle elements? I would say yes, but not really like about architecture. That really didn't kick in until I was in my 20s. I was a person who was really into science, to tell you the truth. I, w- I really wanted to understand the way you know life worked on Earth, and that's where I spent a lot of my time. But I was, more than anything, I loved the sort of hidden stories of things. And then later on, I liked teaching those things. And, and, uh, and that's what I keyed into more than just the design of things. What about you, Kurt? Were you obsessed with this stuff, or did it just ramp up when you started working with Roman? <laughs> um, like one of my earliest memories of playing as a kid was drawing a floor plan of this old brick farmhouse we lived in in upstate New York. So I don't know, like maybe that was a sign. Um, but yeah, no. And then I studied architecture. So I've been, I've been looking at built environments for a, a long time now. <laughs> Does it become a thing though, where between the podcast and now the book, you're like the Terminator. You have some overlay when you look at everything where you're just sensing the <laughs> hidden design and the heat pattern. Or that might be the Predator. Totally. I mix up my Schwarzenegger vehicles. <laughs> but it, it does have that effect. Like there's a really legible information layer on the built world you can kind of tap into. And it does take some discipline. And I can like... I can operate in the world without being distracted by every little thing, but, um, but, but it's definitely more there than it ever has been before for me, for sure. Yeah. And I would, I would shift the metaphor to uh, star Trek and say, it's it, like, this book is, is going to assimilate you into that way of thinking too. Like <laughs> we're basically infecting you with like, and making you part of the hive mind that will then go out and look at the world differently. <laughs> Yeah. Um, outside of the the obvious premise of kind of the things that we don't see, um, what was the organizing principle for this book? How did you both decide what was actually like going to be in here? Uh, spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've been doing the show for 10 years and, you know, the show is about design in a very broad sense. It could be about a building, but it also could be about the origin of the song Who Let the Dogs Out, you know, so... <laughs> you know, we have lots of things that we that we actually cover. And so one of the things that um, we, we did in the very beginning, or Kurt did actually, he just put up this huge spreadsheet of every story we've ever done and then stories that he's written for the website and then stories that were just kind of about cities that we were interested in. Because uh, the organizing principle is that it's a field guide to kind of every city. It's like all the mundane mm-hmm. objects in a city, no matter where you are, it's relevant. And so mm-hmm. it had to be an object that you could find in a city and then just ranked them from one to five and then talked about it. And, and it was, it was really like mm. one of those things that, that was a process, you know, I was like, you know, like as a radio person, uh, for 20 years, I was like, let's just put on all the good stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, like every good story, mm-hmm. we, should, we should try to throw it in there. And he was definitely thinking in, in minds of like the sort of semiotics and tropes of a field guide and about like what goes to the next and goes to the next. So it has a reader experience as well. And he, he was like the mm-hmm. guardian of that mindset. And, and, I, and I was always like, well, let's do the thing where the explosion happens. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like a, that's how that's how I was uh, approaching it. This is Livewire from PRX. We are talking to Roman Mars and Kurt Colstead from the 99% Invisible podcast. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. 
vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm your host Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are talking to podcasters and now authors Roman Mars and Kurt Colstead about their book, The 99% Invisible City: A Field Guide to the Hidden World of Everyday Design. There is a, uh, a bridge that I've been kind of fascinated with. I guess it's a railway overpass for years, um, but I'd never looked into it into the detail that, that, that you do in this book. It's a kind of referred to as the can opener bridge. It's in Durham, North Carolina, and it really seems to be a collision of sort of municipal um, <laughs> buck passing. I don't know. What, <laughs> what's going on in North Carolina? There's this very dangerous bridge. Essentially, everybody has kind of washed their hands of this thing, right? Like the railroad company's like, well, we made it high enough. The city's like, well, we've got utilities running underneath, so we can't really like make the space underneath it lower by like lowering the street level. And the city's like, well, we, we put up signs and signs tell you how tall it is. And we even put up flashing warning signs. And the crazy thing to me about it is they've gone through all these iterations. They've put up all these different flashing signs, everything they can do to stop people from running under this bridge. And people still run their, their trucks and, and caravans under this bridge and hit the bridge. And even as we were writing the book, they were doing this huge, like millions of dollars uh, project to raise the bridge a bit. And they did it. They executed it. And I was waiting to see, like, do we have to change the ending of this story? But no, (laughs) even with the bridge being higher, trucks are still hitting it. So it kind of it's this crazy thing at the middle of all these different bureaucracies that shows, you know, how how people, yeah, can pass the buck endlessly around. And you can put up as many signs as you want and people will still hit that bridge. (laughs) I also think it's a fascinating study in human behavior because they're one of the solutions was let's lie to people about what the clearance is. We're going to, we're going to tell them it's actually lower than it is. But what we humans do cleverly is assume that they're lying to us and that we can get away with a couple of extra inches. So it was an, (laughs) it was an ineffective strategy. Right. It's like speed limits. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So from uh, some not great design to something that is actually pretty genius design, which are revolving doors which you write about in this book, which are doing a lot of important work when it comes to like energy efficiency and things like that. Even though people like me tend to go to the conventional door when it's next to the <laughs> revolving door. Why, 
Why don't we like revolving doors? Why do they have to put signs up saying, don't use the conventional door? <laughs> Roman. They feel bad. They feel bad to be inside of a little tiny, uh, like little space of air. And it, it's like, it's a, it's a human reaction that I think that one of the things about the show and I think about our point of view when it comes to design is, um, you know, your your feelings are not to be discounted. Like if they're not designed well enough for you to feel good about them, then pay attention to that. And hopefully designers pay attention mm. to that because design is supposed to be an empathic exercise. You know, they did find with little bits of, of nudging in the right direction, mainly it's about energy efficiency, um, then we can convince even you, Luke, to go through the revolving door um, just because it, it is generally better for the environment. But you do need those side doors because one of the things they found about revolving doors is they are not good in terms of emergency. Like when you, if you mm -hmm. need rapid egress, uh, queuing up for a revolving door is a very bad thing all of a sudden. It's a good thing most of the time and it's a very bad thing very quickly. And so mm -hmm. that is why there are always push doors, flanking revolving doors um, in, in most cases. And so um, so it's okay to feel the way you do, but I just like let you just like breathe deeply, just walk through <laughs> and it'll be okay. Yeah. I don't even have any sort of low-level claustrophobia to blame it on. I'm just that impatient that I don't want to have to wait <laughs> for the team aspect of this event. I just yeah. want to go do what I want to do. And you, you, you write about signage in this book, and I know you have both looked into it. Do signs work? Do people actually respond to encouragement by way of, of, of written notice, Kurt? Uh, yeah, they, they do. They can. But also people use a lot of cues that aren't signs that are a lot subtler than signs to make their way through spaces. So a lot of it is how a space is designed. It can be even the color that's used, like the type of carpeting that creates a path. Um, so a lot of it is not so much reading the signs as as following the indicators. I mean, when I was traveling in, in China years ago, I had this sudden realization that I can't, you know, at least in, in Europe, I can, you know, I'm familiar with the alphabet. I might be able to piece things together. But in China, I really had to rely on other things for wayfinding because I could not read mm. the characters. And that made me very aware of how arrows and colors and other things could be very helpful, too. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, speaking of, of, of China and maybe folks from China who've come over to North America, uh, there's a really interesting part of the book talking about uh, developers in Vancouver, British Columbia trying to get, well, the government trying to get developers to accurately list the the names or the numbers of the floors in their buildings. They're like these buildings that have like 60 floors, but they're list, they have 53 numbers. And like, what was, what's mm -hmm. been going on with that? And what are the implications? Well, it's notable that we're talking about this on Friday the 13th, uh, which is oh, right. uh, 13 is one Jeez. one of those numbers right. that even sort of like cities that don't have a huge you know, Chinese population, um, we will remove the number 13 from a floor because mm -hmm. people are superstitious. And, and they're mainly kowtowing to sort of people's superstition in terms of real estate. Like there are actual statistics mm -hmm. of like a... A, a condo on the 13th floor is worth 4% less than one <laughs> listed on the 14th floor or something to that effect. I'm not quoting exact numbers here. But what, yeah. what's notable in, in Vancouver, like other Chinese characters, the numbers that sound like other words are particularly like avoided. Mm. Right. So like fours and eights can sound like different, uh, like things that could be murder or death. Um, in Chinese. And so you, you end up with these weird confluence of like between like 13 and four and eight, 
you might be missing or have it have sort of extra things in terms of parking spots, in terms of building floors. And finally, it, it was for fire safety reasons that the city was just like, no, you can't do this because our firemen need to know what floor they're on. You can't just be skipping around. In some cases, they would skip like the entire set of, you know, 40 to, to 49. And it's like, no, no, like in a, in a disaster situation, <laughs> yeah. we need to be able to, to, to go in order and follow the numbers to get to, you know, help people and save, save lives. Do you feel like the nature of cities uh, might change because of the pandemic? I mean, they seem like they're really built around the idea that everybody has to go to a big building and sit near each other to get work done. And I think we're as we're learning, even during this chat, that's not how it has to be anymore. I mean, are you writing a book about a version of cities that may not exist that much longer? I think one of the things that's great about the book being released right now is as people are kind of like could use as a guide to like how we got to now. There's a lot of things about what is a city and a city is really a conversation between top down planners and bottom up interventionists. And it is never a fixed thing. It's this organism that you mentioned earlier. And one of the things that when a thing like a pandemic happens, you really notice what kind of an organism it is. And, you know, you we notice this sort of soft architectural interventions right away with like tape on the floor and plexiglass being put between us and the people who are serving us. I had no idea how many ways there were to affix plexiglass to things. It just yeah. prompted up immediately. And I was like, wow, these people really figured something out really quickly. And it was really stunning. And and one of the things that kind of happens when you're in a city is we kind of have a solipsistic kind of um, narcissistic view of it. Like the city is the way it is. It always has been when I arrived mm-hmm. onto the city scene. Like this is the way it is. <laughs> and so seeing yeah. all this rapid change sort of like makes you open to the idea that cities can and should evolve. And one of the big ones is like traffic space. So, so like right now, Closing down roads and experimenting with outdoor seating because we need to be together. We need to, you know, these are things that make us human. And we're experimenting with this idea that roads aren't just things for cars. And the, the truth of the matter is they were never invented to be just for cars. Roads were always mm-hmm. this multimodal chaotic space that had yeah. people and cars and trolley cars and horses. And they were that way for, you know, thousands of years. And then hundred years ago, we gave them to cars and we never looked back. And now we're kind of clawing back a little bit of that space. And so I think that it's sort of like, it isn't so much that the book would have to change. I mean, we talk about that as evolution. It's, mm-hmm. it's a good moment to experiment with cities because we believe fully in the city is like a, is this great thing that is worth experimenting. It's like worth really challenging it as a citizen to make it the way you want it to be. And mm-hmm. right now we need the city to perform really differently than it than it has for a long time and it's great to watch it like I, it needs to be nimble and uh, and and serve its people well kurt and roman the the book is is just a really fascinating read uh of course not unlike the podcast uh so great work on both of those projects thanks for taking the time to uh, chat with us today it was my pleasure thank you so much for having us thanks so much for having us that was roman mars and Kurt Colstead joining us as part of the Portland Book Festival to talk about their new book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Hey, special thanks this episode to Carol and Michael Friedman of Oakland, California. Dear, dear friends of the show, possibly even related to some important Livewire folks. But even more critically this week, Carol and Michael 
are supporting Livewire with a donation each month, which we really appreciate because it's how we're able to keep doing the show. So thank you so much, Carol and Michael, for keeping Livewire going. You're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, each week on the show, we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question. This week, because we're we're solving some mysteries, or at least attempting to, we ask the Livewire listeners, tell us about a mystery that you can't seem to solve. Elena, you have been collecting up uh, those responses. What are you seeing? This response comes from our friends at Portland's Handsome Pizza. Okay. Um, although I like to think that it just comes from a pizza itself. <laughs> and the pizza wants to know, how is anyone able to sleep on a red-eye flight? I think that's a good one for you because you fly so much. Maybe you – I have not cracked the code. I feel like, you know, when, when they ask, oh, what superpower would you like? The ability to fly – or the ability to be invisible. I would go with the ability to sleep on a red-eye flight. You can't do it either. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I th- there's not enough Xanax in the world <laughs> to get me asleep. And, and I avoid them because you kind of think, oh, well, this is the perfect crime because then I'll just show up at the location I'm going to and it'll be morning. But you spend the rest of your time, wherever it is you're traveling to, trying to recover from the trauma of being on that red-eye. Yeah. Okay, what's another mystery that one of our listeners can't seem to solve? Oh, how about this one from Jeff? Where do the escalator stairs go when you reach the bottom? Don't they just turn into like a a flat thing and then they roll up to the top? Yeah, they become flat and kind of go, I think, around and back up. They just flatten out. But here is really the escalator-related mystery for me. Why am I so disinclined to walk up an escalator after it stopped? Like if I'm walking somewhere and I see some stairs, I think, okay, I know how those work. I'll walk up those. If I get to an escalator that I was thinking of going up on and it's broken, I'm like, forget these stairs. Like it just feels like there's been some kind of violation of trust. I mean, I think you're right not to trust escalators. When I went to the senior prom, I got my dress cut in an escalator. And then so then I had the rest of the prom. I had this gigantic, greasy like track mark along the bottom of my gold satin dress. I'm sure that your date didn't notice. Hope not. All right. One more uh, mystery that one of our listeners is grappling with. Hannah is still trying to solve the concept of time. Hannah writes, <laughs> like, this pandemic is eternal, but it's already past Thanksgiving. But also my kid hasn't gotten dressed yet, even though I've asked him infinite number of times. So <laughs> I guess like <laughs> some things are not advancing. Some things mm-hmm. are speeding by and some things are kind of in this purgatory where maybe they'll never happen. <laughs> I think it's exactly what Matthew McConaughey said in True Detective. Time, Time is, is a flat, a flat circle. circle. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounded profound. And at the time, we were all so obsessed with that TV show. I was uh-huh. walking around going, yeah, man, time really is like a flat circle. I say that to my students all the time. <laughs> all right, speaking of time, it is uh, actually time for us to bring our next guest on over to Livewire. Uh, she's not afraid to investigate uncomfortable questions head on, whether it's how to become Twitter famous or why certain kinds of neighborhoods seem to have more Black Lives Matter signs than um, actual black people. The Kirkus Review called her latest essay collection a hilarious, heartbreaking, and endlessly entertaining homage to black women's resilience and excellence. The book is called This Is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. And we were so thrilled to have her join us as part of the Portland Book Festival last year. Take a listen to this. It's Shayla Lawson right here on Livewire. 
Shayla, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Hi, Shayla. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> I know, of course, the minute that we get started. (laughs) That's okay. The dog gets mentioned in the book. I feel like, is this the Havanese? This is the Havanese. He's up to his antics. Um, This book is is really amazing um, and really eye-opening. I'm curious, though, at the very beginning of the book, you you have a quote from Toni Morrison. Racists always try to make you think they are the majority, but they never are. That feels extremely timely. Why did you pick that quote? Um. I pick that quote because it's true. For such a long time, we have managed the history of America as the history of whiteness and associated the structure of America with community building that was based on creating this concept of white people, Um, Mm -hmm. particularly because so many of the cultures that that migrated here um, would have at a certain point in time been considered at the abject. Um, you were not necessarily always considered white people. So in these derivations of that, we keep moving the line um, farther and farther um, into this binary of the idea that there is a real difference between um, one skin color and versus another in terms of their contribution to the history of America. So I wanted to focus my energy in figuring out what it would be like to try and write a book that decentered that story. Um, and started with using my personal life as a metric for that, because as a Black person living in the States, it's impossible for me to look at my own personal story and that not also be a record of whiteness. You know, so much of even when we think about mm-hmm. the title Black Lives Matter as a movement, um, that's not speaking to Black people. You don't need to tell Black people their lives matter. So that was a lot of what I wanted to Uh, manage within the book is looking at ways to turn what's typically uh, my role as somebody who looks like me, which is kind of a best supporting actress role, and what happens if I become the lead character in my own story. In fact, like when I was living in Portland, that was the first time that I thought about really the importance of shifting away from terminology that referred to um, to culture or ability or gender or or any kind of um, marker that we might exist under as a minority topic or a minority conversation. And in that same vein, um, this is major is looking at what it means to, um, to own the idea of one's place in this culture and that that place um, is a major one. It's not a minor role. It's not a minor key. Um, so I also, I, I, I do a lot with music as, you know, as Elena does as well. And so I also like thinking about how minor yeah. keys are often typically sad. Um, and so mm. shifting it into major is also about shifting it into something that is celebratory as opposed to feeling, um, you know, pigeonholed or stifled by my race. Um, it's something that I really want to celebrate and celebrate the story of, of black femininity, black womanhood and black girlhood. I just wondered if maybe one of the reasons Shayla has shifted to essays from the poetry books is because of the conversationality of the topic. Not that it's conversational, but that you wanted to have a conversation. Do you think that's why This Is Major is a collection of essays and not not another poetry collection? Yeah, I think a lot of us poets in 2016 started getting concerned about the ways that language was being used uh, to, to marginalize yeah. people. Um, And if we think about how much language has been removed from constitutional amendments to our rights at this point, LGBTQ rights, the rights of immigrants, um, 
the rights of protesting. So talking to a lot of poets in watching the election and inauguration in 2016, it just didn't feel that poetry was going to cut it for what we were up against, that we needed more words. Um, because if they were going to be redacted from the documents that are meant to protect us, somebody else has got to fill them in. So that's how this book ended up being an essay collection. I've always liked essays as a form. Um, poetry fit me because I, I, I studied architecture and I, I practiced architecture for a while. So it's a much more visual medium. Um, but I'm really enjoying having that space, like that expansiveness of, of an essay to really talk things through. This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We're talking to Shayla Lawson. Her new book is This Is Major. Uh, one of the places where a lot of writing now happens, or at least a lot of messages are communicated, is on Twitter. But you talk about how, from your standpoint, you're not always appreciative of, of white folks who consider themselves to be allies using a lot of images of black people as gifts and, and ways to make their point online. Just from your perspective, how would you rather see that play out as far as white people interacting with images of black people on places like Twitter? Well, one of the things that I'm creating in the book is a delineation between what allyship looks like in that situation versus what it doesn't, as opposed to these are memes being used by allies, because um, that's not necessarily the case. That's, I think, the first place that we have to start is that we have a long history of using black images as uh, as blackface, this pantomime of the idea of black culture, and uh, mm. gifs are a place where that continues to happen. That people use the gesture of a physical black body as a way to describe something that they think of as being funny or that they think of as being relevant or cool, without uh, the context of why that image exists, and um, that is just as bad as when. Uh, it was, which we still, you know, we, st we shouldn't still be having to deal with, uh, with blackface in this country, but it's just as bad of an issue as when people for vaudevillian acts would uh, put on white gloves and paint their faces black and try to pantomime the idea of what they thought blackness was. Um, it's the same kind of move. And I noticed that as a gesture very acutely when I was working in marketing. And notice how often, despite the fact that I was the only um, Black person who was employed there beyond a temporary contract, um, and particularly as a creative, um, that every single presentation that we had would be filled with nothing but images of Black people. So like the gif of Oprah celebrating the car, gifs from uh, different episodes of Black Blackish where the kids are acting sassy. You know, it was just constantly using these pictures and images of Black people to represent these ideas about culture. And that's, that's highly disruptive and highly negative because then all you're doing is you're turning these, you're turning these people into memes. Um, and that's exactly mm -hmm. what blackface was about. It was turning the idea of, of black culture, its sound, its cadence, its, its, its dances into something that could be reduced to a stereotype. So if you're using just to perpetuate a, a conversational stereotype, which I, you know, I outlined in the book, the idea of, of the difference between using like a Beyonce GIF in order to uh, recognize Beyonce's actual achievements, you know, there's context because then it's like, here's Beyonce, here's something she actually did. Um, mm -hmm. But then 
taking a Beyonce GIF and then attaching it, let's say, to like uh, the Me Too movement, when we know that these these places are also spaces that have consciously um, and very dangerously erased Black women um, in order to privilege the uh, the social damage that has happened to to white faces and, and predominantly richer, whiter, skinnier white people. Um, those mm. kinds of things are real issues. And it's something that we don't need to perpetuate in the digital space. Um, it's very similar to how mm. I talked about how AI can't see black women because it cannot mm. recognize a dark-skinned female. They do not put enough data into the machines um, for them to be able to delineate between um, a dark-skinned male and a dark-skinned female uh, or a dark-skinned person at all. Sometimes we just are rendered completely invisible. And... Um, that kind of use of GIFs can do the exact same thing. Um, there's also, uh, I don't know if erasure would be the right term, but there's a sort of a digital relationship uh, as being a woman of color that I would not experience as a white guy. You talk about Tinder and mm-hmm. the, the data on who clicks on whom on Tinder. You're like dipping your toe in the Tinder waters after you get divorced in this book. Yeah. And it is, uh, <laughs> it's a real adventure. Oh, I hate Tinder. I can't stand it. Why don't you like Tinder? Um... I don't like interacting with avatars of people. So when I was, you know, when I was your age kind of thing, but when I, <laughs> having to shift from the world where before I met my husband, I would go out and I would meet people and we would connect. And that was how I met my friends. And that's how I started most of my romantic relationships. Um, well, really all of them, because there was no other way to do it. Um, and then to come back into the world and to see the ways that woman had, had, been, had been turned into an even uh, greater commodity, you know, expressly to work in the interest of the whole, like, like the Facebook males. I think a lot about how Zadie Smith talks about Facebook and the social, the social networks that were created by these men who felt disenfranchised and like, as if they had a lack of power, the kind of power that they were supposed to be able to have as white privilege and the ways that they felt that that was taken away from them because of having to perform in social spaces. So something like an app, empowers these men who think of themselves as weak by furthering the idea of women as a commodity because Mm -hmm. you just keep swiping through them. And statistically, you know, you could say that, well, everybody's swiping, but the issue is that statistically what happens is that women will swipe for people that they consider might be a possible match for them because of personality or an interest or, you know, but then men are typically swiping to see who is the most stereotypically attractive girl that they can get, which mm. also really messes with the algorithm because what it starts to do is if you're a woman who is swiping for people because you're really interested, you're like, oh, you know, this guy's been places I like and, you know, he might not look like my type, but let me at least try and talk to him. Um, it ranks you lower in the algorithm and the matches that you get get significantly worse. Yeah, most people don't know this, but this is actually how it works. So let's say you swipe on a seven because um, he, you know, he went to Cairo and that's something that you're interested in, or you swipe on a five because he's got a cute puppy, then you'll get matches between sevens and fives. You won't get tens. Wow. But guys consistently get 
the highest scoring women because of the fact that they'll only swipe for the women that are stereotypically looked at as attractive. And so black women are one of those categories of stereotype that, you know, consistently left out of those arenas because the whole world has been set up for us to be looked at as second class womanhood, second class citizenship. Um, The same happens with Asian males. And these were both very specific pieces of enslavement and colonization about the ways that our bodies were supposed to function when it comes to Asian males and Black women that is now being played out again when we're looking at the digital space. And that's the thing that makes it scary. Um, Mm -hmm. So before, my issue was with apps was just intimacy. But then the longer that I spent time on them and the more that I started realizing what they were doing, it's actually pretty insidious because we Mm -hmm. are just re reinstating these ideas um, surrounding people as commodities that prevents them from finding actual love or connection and continues to make that search about competition. And at the end of the day, I've never met anybody who was a good match for me through a competition. Um, You know, Mm. I've met them through connection. And I think that was the nice thing about writing the tender essay is that um, me and the person that I went on this date with found um, an actual connection. You know, it was first kind of rooted in us kind of working around the idea of like, okay, like, why do you swipe for, you know, why do you swipe for black girls? What's your deal? Um, And then realizing, you know, that, that there was a lot about us that worked. And of course the date was an entire fiasco. (laughs) (laughs) But had these really beautiful moments. I mean, it was sort of cinematic at points where like, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but he's like bringing out some paint and you guys were, were getting dangerously close to like ghost when like Demi Moore is potting or whatever. It was very artsy and sexy. Uh, Cake is Canceled is one of the, the tender chapters, one of the first chapters that I wrote for the book. Mm. Oh, really? And it was. It was actually in my proposal. I think it may have been the very first mm. one that I wrote, in fact. Um, and uh, yeah, and so it was one of the things that we sold the book on. Uh, well, Shayla Lawson, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. That was Shayla Lawson joining us here on Livewire as part of last year's Portland Book Festival. That was back in November. Her book that she was talking about is This Is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. I'm Luke Burbank. I'm here with Elena Passarello and all of you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be back in a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour was at one time the lead singer of the Australian band Men at Work. Remember they did that um, Land from Down Under song, which Mm -hmm. you probably remember, Who Can Forget, playing right now, um, probably in a drugstore near you. (laughs) Anyway, uh, after uh, being in Men at Work, Colin Hay, the lead singer, went on to establish a solo career and uh, develop a really loyal fan base, uh, which we found out about when that fan base showed up 
in huge numbers at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland in early 2020 when we had Colin on the show to play some songs. Take a listen to this. What, what song are we going to hear? I'm going to do an old uh, song I wrote when I was with Men at Work just so you kind of go, oh, is that that guy? Oh, is, that, is that guy? Because sometimes I see people in the audience and I haven't played a Men at Work song for a while. I see them turn around at people and they go, All right, this is Colin Hay on Livewire. I can get to sleep I think about the implications of Diving in too deep and Possibly the complications Especially at night I worry over situations I know we'll be all right Perhaps it's just imagination Day after day It reappears Night after night My heartbeat Shows the fear Ghosts appear And fade away sheets only brings exasperation it's time to walk the streets smell the desperation at least there's pretty lights and though there's little variation it nullifies the night from overkill Day after day that reappears Night after night my heartbeat shows fear Ghosts appear and fade away Especially at night I worry over situations that I know will be alright It's just overkill Day after day it reappears Night after night my heartbeat shows
That was Colin Hay right here on Livewire, recorded back in early 2020. His latest album is Fierce Mercy. All right, before we wrap up this week's show, a little preview about what's coming up next week. Uh, We're going to be chatting with writer Omar Al-Akkad about his incredible book, What Strange Paradise. Then we're going to be talking to filmmaker Penny Lane about her new film, Listening to Kenny G, which is about why some people don't like Kenny G's music and why a lot of people really love it. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the Livewire listeners for next week's show? What's something that you love that few other people seem to appreciate? Huh, total coincidence. That's the question on the week. We're talking about an appreciation of Kenny G. Ah! (laughs) All right, if you have an answer to that question, something you love that a lot of other people do not seem to be on board with, reach out on Facebook or Twitter. We're at Livewire Radio. All right, that is going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Roman Mars, Kurt Colstead, Shayla Lawson, and Colin Hay. Also, special thanks to Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Bara Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Carol and Michael Friedman of Oakland, California. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.